Open your Bibles if you have a Bible. And we're going to be tonight in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation tonight. If you've ever been on a road trip, and we've been on a few, my wife and I, uh, one time we went from our hometown Bernalillo up through uh, towards Farmington, New Mexico. And on the way up there, there's a little town called Cuba. But in between, from Bernalillo to Cuba, it's all desert. And then you get to Cuba, and it's kind of pretty. And then it gets desert again. You get to Farmington. Then you go up into Durango, and it starts to get very beautiful. And as you're traveling up through Durango, you begin to just notice the scenery is just breathtaking. And then you start realizing, man, this is worth it. You, you get up there to Telluride and all that, Uray, and, and you see the beautiful mountains and the, and the, you know, the, the snow-capped mountains there. And then you look down, there's a beautiful river. And I'm thinking, oh, what a great place to live, go trout fishing and all. And uh, just a, an awesome time going through there. Well, I, I kind of wanted to compare that to coming to this chapter tonight, because this chapter tonight is sort of like a mountaintop experience in some ways. As you look at the book of Revelation and you go through the book of Revelation, there's a lot of difficult stuff in the book of Revelation. It's kind of like you're going through the desert and it's desolate and there's a lot of awful things going on. And, and uh, you know, before this, the seal judgments happen and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments and there's chaos in the world. There's casualties during the seven-year tribulation. Literally millions and millions of people will die during the tribulation period. And all of this, though, is still future for all, you know, this is all future stuff still. Um, and, you know, when we look at uh, the, what the Bible tells us um, about the future, we know that the, the Bible has tons and tons about the future as far as prophecy goes. In fact, uh, I've heard, uh, I think is it one-third of the, of the Bible or something around there is Bible prophecy, or maybe it's even more than that. And so, you know, there's all this stuff that talks to us about the future. And there's exciting times ahead for the believer. We know that because the Bible tells us very clearly what's going to happen. And the, there's a flip side, though. If you're not following the Lord and you're not living for the Lord and you're living for this world, this present world that's passing away, um, it's not going to be glorious. It's bleak. The future is bleak if you're unsaved. But as we come to this portion of Scripture this evening, I think it's inspiring because as you look at what takes place here, it's, it's awesome because the, the stuff that happens during the tribulation, a lot of it is really awful. In fact, uh, I've been teaching through the book of Revelation now for a little while, and we've had people that said, well, if you're going to teach through the book of Revelation, I'm not going to come to church because I think it's too scary. <laughs> and they don't want to see it. They don't want to hear it. You know, but when you look at the, the book of Revelation, there's a lot of amazing things that are going to happen in the world. And this portion that we're going to look at this evening is neat because this is the portion where Jesus comes to establish his kingdom on the earth. Now, it actually be begins happening in Revelation chapter um, 19. But here in chapter 20, there's some amazing things that take place. Now, as we look at uh, the book of Revelation, there's a lot of praise. There's a lot of worship going on. There's these scenes in heaven. And one of the scenes in heaven is in Revelation 19 when the Lord finally comes back to the earth and he deals with the Antichrist and the false prophet and he basically um, you know, demolishes and defeats their kingdom. And they are both cast alive into the lake of fire. They're the first two residents that get thrown into the lake of fire, the false prophet and the Antichrist. Now, Jesus, when he comes to return to the earth, he comes back in power 
and in great glory. And we're told that he comes back with his church. He comes back with us, his saints, and also with his angels. And it tells us that we'll be riding on white horses. Anybody, uh, uh, anybody into horses in here at all? You know, there's a, what, my assistant, what's that, you are? You're on one too? Yeah. One of my, my assistant pastor, he's never ridden a horse. And I tease him all the time. I said, I told him last time, I said, you know, uh, you need to learn how to ride a horse or you're going to come back and you're going to be like on a horse with like, you know, a car seat, like a little kid, so you don't fall off. And so just kidding with him. And he says to you, to me, because he's from Maine, he says, well, have you ever ridden or been on a lobster boat? And I'm like, no. And so, so he, gets, he gets me back. But anyway, so, you know, this is really neat. So we see this scene of Jesus returning with his church on, on white horses and he defeats the Antichrist and his armies, we don't have swords. He has a sword. We don't have to do anything but, but watch the whole thing. Now, there's still one more task left to be done, though. And the task that we're going to look at this evening is that Jesus is going to deal with the actual big guy. He's going to deal with Satan. Now, the book of Romans chapter 16, verse 20, tells us that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now I want to go back and I'm going to try to tie some of the Old Testament into this, this teaching and prophecy. Uh, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 46. I want to show you some stuff. We'll be bouncing around in the scripture a little bit tonight. Isaiah chapter 46 beginning at verse 8. And there's a, an amazing prophecy here uh, concerning, well, it speaks about prophecy sort of and, and gives us some insight in how this whole thing works from God's perspective. So it's Isaiah chapter 46, beginning at verse 8. It says, Remember this, and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. And I am God, and there is none, none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure." Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I also will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will also do it. Listen to me, stubborn-hearted, who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near and, and shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. And so God tells us that he makes prophecies basically this. It's God telling us, making known the end from the beginning. He's telling us the future in advance. And so from ancient times, he's revealing to us the things that are to come. And God is going to fulfill his purposes and what he says he will always bring about and his plans will be accomplished. We can always take anything that God says in prophecy to the bank. Now, as we're going to look at this uh, text this evening here in Revelation chapter 20, let's take a look at the first three verses. And it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, 
I want to say this. The subject of Satan or the devil or the dragon or the serpent of old is probably my least favorite subject. I don't like to talk about the devil. I don't like to, you know, give him any kudos. I don't like anything that he does. I don't like anything that he represents. But you know, here's the thing. You can't ignore him. The scripture doesn't ignore him, and we should not ignore him either. Now, there's people that will say, Aha, I don't believe in the devil. You know, that's just a bunch of fairy tales. It's, it's silly fantasy. It's all metaphor. You know, it's just a metaphor to try to explain evil. Or I've even heard this one, the Catholic Church made up the devil in hell to scare people. You know, all kinds of stuff that people will say. But here's the thing. If that's how you think, then you're not going to be guarded against the devil if you don't even believe that he exists. In fact, if you're thinking that way, he's already got you duped, he's already got you deceived, and he, got, he has you where he wants you. And I believe that Satan laughs at anyone who doesn't believe that he's real. Because then you're not going to be aware of what he's up to, and you're going to be um, ignorant and not able to resist him. Now, first of all, the scripture is very clear when it comes to the devil or when it comes to Satan. We know from scripture that he's an actual created angel. He's a created being. Now, he's not at all even close to equal to God. So who is he? And how did he come about? Well, the Old Testament introduces him to us way back in the book of Genesis chapter 3. It's there that he comes in the form of a serpent. Remember, he talks to Eve and he gets Eve to, he dupes her, basically, he tricks her into eating from the fruit that God said not to. He questions God, he questions his word. He basically lies to Eve and he says, you will not surely die. Now Jesus calls the devil, Jesus acknowledges that he's real, obviously, and he says about the devil that he is a liar and the father of lies, and that when he speaks, he speaks his native language, which is lies. And he says he's been lying from the beginning. Now, a lot of us have a native language. My native language, even though I don't usually do it very well, is English. Um, some people <laughs> speak Spanish. That's their native language or their native tongue. French, you know, it might be Swahili or whatever. But Satan, when he speaks his native language, he speaks lies. Now, we know, like I said, he's created, but he was one of the highest of the ranking angels in God's creation. Now, he is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere all at once. I was sharing at our fellowship that most likely most of us probably have never ever dealt with him directly because he can only be at one place at one time. Uh, but he uses demons or fallen angels to do his bidding. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing either. Ezekiel chapter 28 tells us about him. Ezekiel chapter 28 beginning at verse 12 says about him these words. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, beryl, and your settings and your mountain, mountings were made of gold. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until the day of, uh, until wickedness was found in you. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. 
your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. Isaiah chapter 14 again tells us, verse 12 through 15 says, gives us insight about him. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Lucifer means light bearer or shining one or morning star. He says, You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, now listen to this, it's interesting. He, the Lord describes what Satan was saying to himself. He said, you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the uttermost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But, you were brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. The Bible tells us that he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So God dealt with Satan, or Lucifer, because of his pride. He wanted to take the place of God. He was beautiful. He was anointed. Now, when we talk about Lucifer, the light bearer, you know, he's, it tells us he was the anointed or guardian cherub. Now, Apparently, he becomes jealous of God. He wants the position of God. Um, he wanted to be like God. He was beautiful. He was full of wisdom. But it corrupted him, and he became prideful. So God cast him out of heaven to the earth. Now, Satan or Lucifer or the devil or the dragon, that serpent of old, as we're told here in our text, um, has been loose on planet earth for a long time doing what he wants to do. And of course, you can look at the fruit of what he does because he wreaks havoc in, on the planet all the time. He's responsible for the evil that we see in the world today, the deception, the political lies, the religious lies, the medical deceptions that are going on in the world today. He's involved in cults. He's involved in isms and violence and hate and crime and murder and lies. And we're told about the devil that he is cunning, that he is crafty, that he actually masquerades as an angel of light. Second Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that, that he's full of schemes. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, he blinds the minds of unbelievers. Why are unbelievers blinded to the gospel? I can remember as a non-Christian uh, myself, I was blinded to the gospel. And I had, thankfully, I had a good friend of mine who's now a believer as well. And his mom was a Christian and she was praying for us all of the time. And I remember one time we came into her house and we were eating dinner and we were laughing because we were high. We were stoned. And she knew it. And she was mad, but she was a Christian. And she looks across the table at me and she says to me, Joseph, Satan is using you and he's laughing in your face. Well, when you tell a stone person that, it kind of freaks them out. And so I got freaked out, and I went home, and I laid there in my bed thinking, she's right, you know. And I started getting convicted about my sin. But Satan had control of my life. And so he's very cunning, he's crafty, he blinds the minds of unbelievers. He takes people prisoner or captive to do his will, we're told. Second Timothy chapter 2. He tempts people. He is called the tempter. He imprisons people. Now the million dollar question is, does he have you or does Jesus have you? Because one or the other has you. But he entangles people, he sets traps for people. Satan, as Hal Lindsey said in one of his books, is alive and well on planet Earth. 
Now, Satan also means, the, the word Satan or the term Satan means, or, or the title Satan means adversary. Devil means accuser. And that's who he is. He's our number one enemy. And if he can, he will try to take people down with him. His goal is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. So we look at scripture, and there's a lot of scripture warning us about him, teaching us about him. It's sort of a wake-up call. See, we need to recognize that we are the target of the evil one, just like we are the target of God's love and God sending his son to save us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 tells us that our battle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now the bottom line is this. Satan hates your guts. He has a, as someone said, he has a horrible plan for your life, which is the total opposite of God. God loves us, has a great, wonderful plan for our lives. But the question comes down to this. Who have we hitched our wagon to, if you will? Who are we living for? When I first got saved early on in my early walk with the Lord in the early 80s, uh, there was a, an artist that got saved around that same time, and his name was Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan, he put out a few Christian albums, and I think one of them was Slow Train Coming, and on, in that album, it's a really good, good album, and he, he had a lot of great lyrics, but in one of the songs, he said, you've got to serve somebody. He said, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So when it comes to Jesus, there's no such thing as neutrality. Jesus said the same thing. He was not for me, is against me. You cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus. If you are neutral, then you're against him. Because if you're not for him, you're against him. Now, Paul says about the devil that we are not unaware of his schemes, lest he outwit us. Now, this evening, we're, like I said, one of the great highlights of Scripture. And the reason I say that is because of what finally happens to Satan in this chapter. What a glorious day that will finally be when it happens. And we see what begins to take place. Look again at, at chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and, and put a seal over him, or on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, up until now, Satan, like I said a while ago, has had his way on planet Earth. He has run about freely. Um, he even has, as, and has had, access to heaven. You remember the story in the book of Job, when... The angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came as well. So he has had access up and down and all around. <laughs> so he's been very busy. Now, in the last chapter, what happened in the last chapter, we don't have a time to go look back at it, but in the last chapter, the Antichrist and the false prophet, who are basically possessed by Satan, are taken care of, but now it's, like I said, Satan's turn to get taken care of. John sees, and he keeps talking about this in this vision, he sees another angel. And he's been seeing and seeing and writing down what he sees. And he sees another angel. Now this angel is unidentified here, which I think is ironic. This angel descends upon the earth and he's coming here on a very important assignment. 
And in his hand he has a key, the key to the bottomless pit, or the abyss, or the abusos. What is that? Well, it's mentioned earlier on in the book of Revelation and even in the Gospels. It's a prison or a dungeon basically for demons, for fallen angels. Apparently some of the worst of the worst have been incarcerated there. Uh, they were released. Some of them were released back in Revelation chapter 9 and they caused all kinds of problems and killed people and, and it was ugly. They were ugly looking and they did a lot of damage in the earth when they were released from the abyss. Now, as we look at the story of where he is going to be cast into, into the bottomless pit here, or the abyss, Jesus talked about this a little bit. This happened in the ministry of Jesus. You remember the story. He was where Pat and them were at, at the Sea of Galilee. I don't know, if, I, I think I saw a picture that they were recently there. And Jesus was there on the Sea of Galilee, and he tells his guys, let's go to the other side of the lake. So they go to the other side and they meet a demoniac. And when they meet the demoniac, remember, the demoniac begins to speak and Jesus asks who he is and he says, my name is Legion for we are many. He is possessed by a couple thousand demon and demons. And so uh, the demons begin to beg Jesus. They say, please do not send us into the abyss but or, or into the bottomless pit, but order us to go into the, the pigs. And so Jesus allowed that to happen. Now, they said also, please do, do not torture us. So apparently, the abyss is a place of torture. Jude speaks of it as a place where the fallen angels are kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for the judgment on that great day. So it's not a good place. But this is where Satan is about to get thrown into. Now this angel has a key to this bottomless pit. So God is the one that is in control of this pit. Now he also has a great chain in his hand. And I'm thinking to myself, how great a chain would it take to bind Satan? Literally, right? And this is a, is this a, a literal chain or is this you know, metaphoric? We don't know for sure. But look at verse 2. It tells us, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, what I think is also interesting about this is pretty amazing. This unnamed angel, he deals with Satan himself. The serpent of old, the devil, the dragon. There are four names that are mentioned here concerning who he is, so that there's no mistake as to who is being bound. Now, this angel handles them all by himself. Not a whole bunch of angels, just one. Which really shows us the power of God. Now, why do I emphasize this? Because, let's understand, Satan is no match for the Lord. He's not even a match for one of the Lord's big angels or strong angels. And so, he deals with them. And, and what's also awesome is we have promises given to us as believers concerning the spiritual battle that we're in. 1 John chapter 4 says, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Now a couple of mistakes are made often concerning the devil. Number one is that he is more powerful than he really is. And a lot of people give, I believe, the devil too much credit. And they live paralyzed by fear, uh, demon paranoia. I remember meeting a guy one time and he said, there's a demon in my engine, you know, and, and I mean, just all this stuff. And he was always blaming everything on a demon, you know, and demon, demon, who's got the demon? And so I think there's people that do that. And then there's other people, like I said earlier, that are ignorant of Satan and his schemes and his reality, and they're duped. And so these two imbalances are dangerous. 
Now James tells us, though, that we are to submit ourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Peter says resist him standing firm in the faith. Now, the devil does come around, or, you know, we call it the devil, or Satan, or his demons, will tempt us. But how do we overcome the evil one? Well, we just heard a couple of verses there. We're also told in the book of Revelation that we overcome the devil by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that. So as a child of God, we know that Jesus lives in us now. And Jesus defeated Satan already. He already crushed his head. And so we are on the winning team. Satan is a defeated foe. And he's been defeated by Jesus when he rose from the dead and he conquered sin and death. And he has set us free, the captives free, from Satan's grip and power. Before you came to Christ, before I came to Christ, we were enslaved by Satan. Now, if you would have asked me as an unbeliever, hey, Joseph, are you a Satan worshiper? Do you follow the devil? I would have said, you're crazy, get away from me. But Satan had control of my life. I did not, I was not serving the Lord. I was raised religious. I went to church, but I didn't live my life for Jesus. I knew about God. I knew about Jesus a little bit, but I was just living my life for the flesh. And, and the thing is, is that Satan, he takes people captive and he uses them just like the Lord does. Now, one of the things that happens to us Christians, though, that we have to be careful with, and I heard this a few years ago, and I wrote it down in my Bible. I don't even know who said it, but I liked it. And I think it's a tactic that Satan uses on Christians often. And that's this, that Satan is never too busy to rock the cradle of sleeping saints. So we have to be careful as Christians that we don't fall into apathy or indifference or slumber or sleep or lack of zeal. See, God wants to use us to change this world, to bring the light of the gospel to the world, to our family members, to, you know, our haircutters. I, I had a chance this week, I went to get my haircut, and I got to share my testimony and talk to my haircutter about the Lord and invited her to church, and I hope she comes, you know. And so wherever you're at, the Lord wants to use us. But Satan wants us just to kind of, ah, you know what, I, I don't need to do that. I'm in, I'm saved, you know, I'm, I'm good with God. You know, there's a lot of work to be done before Jesus comes back. But we, so what we see happens here is that Satan gets bound now, literally for a thousand years. Now this, thus begins the rule and reign of Jesus upon the earth for a thousand years. Jesus returns to the earth with his church to establish his kingdom. Now verse 3 has good news and bad news. Look at verse 3. It says, And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. Now the good news is he's cast into the bottomless pit. He's shut up now for a thousand years. He's shut up in more than one way. He's sealed. He's no longer allowed the freedom to deceive the nations. No more of his evil influences are going to be happening on planet Earth. And like I said earlier, you can look around and you can see his evil influences and how he deceives nations. I think America is deceived in many ways. And Satan deceives not only by blinding individuals, but also by deceiving nations as well. And, you know, one of the things that Satan does is he blinds people to their need of a Savior uh, or, or the consequences of sin. 
Every one of us are in desperate need of a Savior. But Satan will blind us to that. Another thing that he does is he nominalizes and normalizes what God calls sinful or what God calls evil. And so we live in a day and an age and a culture now where good is called evil and evil is called good. And if you stand up for righteousness, you're a bad person. You're an unloving person. You're judgmental. You know, there's a whole bunch of names you'll get called if you stand up for the Lord. But he holds, Satan, Satan holds nations, he holds people, and there's a lot of ways that he puts chains on people. It might be through drugs or alcohol, uh, the misuse of sex, uh, the lust for power, materialism, uh, status, fame, all kinds of things. But the good news is here, he's bound for a thousand years, and he's finally shut down. Now the bad news is that he gets let loose at the end of the thousand years for a little while. Why is that? Well, you can read ahead and you'll learn a little bit more. Uh, we don't have a chance to look at that uh, in, in the same uh, chapter. But now during the thousand years, though, Satan, as he's locked up, and uh, we have a couple guys in our church, and I have a really cool story to tell you guys. A couple guys in our church that have been in prison. One of them was in prison for 20 years. One of them was in prison for 30 years. One guy comes into the church. Let's see how much time I got here. Oh, my. I'm almost done. Okay. Keep going. All right. Uh, we're going to be, I'm going to be like Paul the Apostle at midnight. You're going to start falling over asleep. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, this guy in the church, these two guys in church here in our Bible study. And one of them had been in prison like all these years. And so I'm talking to him. Now the other guy, there's a third guy in the story. He was a prison guard in Santa Fe. And I said to him one day, I said, hey, Joe. I said, you know these guys in prison? He goes, oh, yeah. And one of the guys said, yeah, I was supposed to kill him. And so he, and then they started talking back and forth a little bit. And, and Joe was saying, yeah, this guy was a bad character. He said, we had to watch him like a hawk. We never, ever dealt with him by ourselves. He was always getting in fights. He was always getting in trouble. And anyway, he was supposed to kill him. There was a hit out from his boss. So anyway, they're telling me the story, and I'm like, wow, you know? And then right after they're finished telling me the story, Joe says to Leroy, who's the, the bad guy, was the bad guy, right? He got saved. Joe says to Leroy, hey, want to go to Denny's and have breakfast? And I'm like, this is so fantastic. Like, I'm like, this is amazing, right? They walk out together. He was going to kill him at one point. They hated each other, you know? And what an amazing thing how God works. Now, the day that Leroy came into church, the very first day he came into church, he sits down in my office and he starts telling me, he says, I just got out of prison. He's been coming to church now for quite a while. He goes, I just got out of prison, he says, and, and, and you know, I, I did all these things in prison in my life. He tells me about his life a little bit. He goes, but I don't want to live that life anymore. I'm sick of it. I want to live, I've been living for the devil and I, I don't want to live for him anymore. I want to live for the Lord. And he says, so I brought my weapon. He brings his, his, uh, his knife, what do they call him? His shank, yeah. He, he puts his shank on my table, on my, on my desk. And he said, this is what I've used in prison. I don't want to depend upon this anymore. From this day forward, I, I want to give this to you, and I want to serve the Lord. And he said a prayer, asked the Lord to come into his life, and the Lord changed him. It's just been amazing to see the work that the Lord has done in his life. Now, not too long after that, um, he was, we hired him for a few, uh, uh, as a substitute janitor, and he was cleaning my office. When he gave me the shank, I hid it up on a shelf in my office, and, and he calls me on the phone, he goes, hey, Pastor Joseph, I found my shank. How come you still have it? I go, in case anyone comes in and tries to do anything to me, you know? <laughs> 
just messing with him. But anyway, but you know, it's just so neat to see how God can change a life, right? The power of the Lord to change a, a human being. It's amazing. So anyway, back to our study. Now, in this text, six times the term a thousand years is used in seven verses. So I don't believe this is allegorical or this is literal. Now there's different views. There's amillennialism, postmillennialism. They try to allegorize the word of God. They, and, and when you do that to me, you butcher it. What we consider ourselves at Calvary Chapel are premillennialists. And so we believe that the safest interpretation is the most literal interpretation. But if you try to allegorize it, you can come up with all kinds of craziness. And so beware of that. You know, be careful of that. Now the Old Testament describes the kingdom age. And what happens in the kingdom age when Jesus comes back? Because this is going to be fantastic. Look over at Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, and I want to show you this. This is really neat. This is what's going to happen on the earth. When the Lord comes back, the earth is going to be restored and beautiful like the times uh, prior to, I believe, prior to the curse or prior to the, the flood even. And so we look at Isaiah chapter 11, and let's read a few of the verses. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. This is a messianic prophecy. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with his breath, the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. This is speaking about his second coming when Christ comes back to defeat the Antichrist in his kingdom. Verse 5, his righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. And then verse 6, it says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together. And a child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, speaking of Jesus the Messiah, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and the resting, his resting place shall be glorious. And so we have these amazing promises of what it's going to be like. The earth is going to be changed. The earth will be different you know, I, I jokingly tell our folks in Silver City, you'll be able to go to Lordsburg, but for you guys, you'll be able to go to Wilcox for vacation. It'll be like Hawaii. It'll be beautiful. And so, you know, uh, and so it's going to be like the days pre-flood. Isaiah chapter 65 says this, Never again will there be an infant that lives but a few days. An old man who does not live out his, his years, or an old man who does not live out his years, he who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And so even the animal kingdom itself, when Jesus comes back to reign on this earth, will be at peace. 
just amazing what's going to happen. And it also talks to, and we don't have time, I guess, really to, because I'm already getting over. But there's, a, there's another really neat verse. Read it on your own, okay? Isaiah chapter 35. It's really awesome. It talks about hum, the human body will be healed. There won't be sickness and disease like it is now under the curse. There'll be no need for doctors or HMOs or, or Botox or facelifts or Dr. Fauci telling you you have to wear a mask or you can, whatever, you know, telling you how to breathe. None of that's going to happen. It's all going to be gone. Everything's going to be different when Jesus comes back. And there'll finally be peace. There was a Gallup poll that was taken a while ago and people were asked their top 10 most desired things in life. Number four on the list of, of all these people that took it said they want peace. They want world peace. Well, when Jesus comes back, the Prince of Peace, there will finally be peace. And that's what's so awesome. And so we have so much to look forward to as Christians. Let's go back to our text in Revelation and we'll finish it off real quick here and, uh, and see what, what happens next. Uh, Revelation 20. Get back there. Should have marked it. All right. Revelation 20. And let's look at, uh, where was I? Okay. All right, let's look at verse four. And, and I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Now, we don't have time to go into all this, but Jesus promised his disciples or his apostles, that they would sit on 12 thrones and they would judge the 12 tribes of Israel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, says that we, the church, will judge the world, or judge angels even. And so we know that this is going to happen. Now, we see here that during the tribulation period, there are different groups spoken of in the, in the Scripture. There's Old Testament saints, there's New Testament saints, the church, there's the tribulation saints. A lot of the tribulation saints get killed or beheaded during the tribulation period. They're going to come to life at the end of when Jesus Christ comes back. They're going to be resurrected. And so it says here, um, then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands and they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the Bible says that we, the bride of Christ, will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years and then this group will come back to life, the tribulation martyrs will come back to life. Some believe Old Testament saints as well. And then we will rule and reign with Christ and there will be awesome things for us to do during the kingdom age. Verse 5, the rest of the dead, this is speaking about, now there's two resurrections. The first resurrection comes in phases. Jesus was raised first, the rapture of the church, the tribulation saints. It's all the first resurrection in phases. Second resurrection is at the great white throne judgment where all the unbelievers will be raised at the end of the thousand years and face the Lord at the great white throne judgment. We won't be there as Christians. We will meet the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ for reward or loss of reward, but not for our salvation. Our salvation has been secured by Christ. So he says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death at the great white throne judgment has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So when I talked about this chapter being a glorious chapter, it talks, there's so much more I could have talked about, but I'm, I'm speeding. <laughs> so, but there's, this is a great chapter when you think about the future for us as the Lord's bride. 
and the future of the Lord's kingdom. And that's what we look forward to. That's what we pray for. I remember as a Catholic kid, I used to pray uh, the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. You remember that prayer? Our Father, art in heaven, blah, blah, blah. Are thy kingdom come? We'd pray that. I, I kingdom come. And I remember, I never understood that. I prayed it, but I never understood it. But now that I read the scripture, I can't wait for his kingdom to come. When he puts a veto to this big mess that we've made, and Christ comes back, that stone that's not cut out of, with, with human hands, it speaks about it in Daniel, and he comes and he crushes all the kingdoms of the world and establishes his kingdom. You want to be a part of that? Make sure you're a part of that. Make sure that your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. Make sure you belong to the Lord. Because if you're not, and you're part of the kingdom of darkness, you're a goner. <laughs> That's all I can say. You're a goner. But if you're part of his kingdom, you have everlasting life, and the Lord has great plans for our future. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Such a blessing. Thank you, Lord, for being able to, to look at it at least quickly and, and, and talk about it a little bit. We pray, Lord, that you would just encourage us to get into it more, to study more, to read more, to learn more, and to see what you have for us. Lord, I thank you that we are not going to live uh, eternally bored. We're going to live with a lot of awesome things happening uh, throughout eternity, Lord. And so I pray you'd prepare us for the future. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.